This podcast was supported by Grant 2016 MUMUK001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Welcome, everyone, to the Reflections on Research podcast. I'm your host, Mike Geringer, Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. Really excited for our conversation. I'll be covering a lot of interesting topics here in our second season of Reflections on Research. And just a reminder that this episode is brought to you as part of our work on the National Mentoring Resource Center, or NMRC. And that is the nation's leading source of training and technical assistance for youth mentoring programs. The center is sponsored through a cooperative agreement with the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP. You might hear us refer to them from time to time. And they have a long history of investing not only in youth mentoring programming, but also in youth mentoring research. And we certainly thank them for their generous support of both research and projects like the NMRC that allow research to reach a wider audience. This is your first time listening to an episode of Reflections on Research. Please note that you can find new episodes of this series on the NMRC website at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org. And you can always get the scoop on these podcasts and other projects of the center by subscribing to our monthly e-newsletter. And you can also listen to the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes as well. I'm really excited to dive into today's conversation as we have a guest who has explored what I consider to be some really interesting new ground in the field of youth mentoring, and who I think brings a a really wonderfully different perspective to uh, this topic. And so without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Sam McQuillan. Sam is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of South Carolina. His work focuses on how schools and communities can work together to promote emotional, behavioral, and academic wellness in children who are environmentally or developmentally at risk. His work focuses on translating theories of child development to pragmatic prevention and intervention strategies, and he's particularly interested in how and why relationships between young people and adult helpers, so for example, mentors, uh, how and why those relationships promote positive youth development. He's also part of his department's quantitative psychology area of emphasis and serves as a quantitative methodologist on a broad range of research projects, including a few done in collaboration with Mentor over the years. So uh, welcome, Sam. It's good to be talking with you today. Happy to be here. I want to start off talking a little bit about your approach to research in general. Uh, I have found your work to have a bit of a contrarian streak to it, what you might think of as a a friendly devil's advocate in the world of youth mentoring. And what I mean by that is that a lot of your projects, a lot of your research have examined things that I think many in our field would consider to be pretty rock solid, pretty unassailable ideas. Uh, some of them have questioned whether mentors and youth need to be in relationships that are really 
extremely close or whether there's a lower level of kind of relationship uh, getting along that is sufficient in mentoring. You're a proponent of offering training over the course of the match, not so much a big fan of pre-match training, which is what I think uh, many mentoring programs do. Uh, You've also pushed back on the idea that mentoring relationships need to be long in duration. You've been a proponent of much shorter term uh, mentoring interventions. And so we'll talk about all of these things over the course of this conversation. But I guess my question to you is, is do you wind up with these uh, kind of contrarian positions or, or exploring these things on purpose? Is there something about your personality that makes you want to poke kind of established ideas with a stick a little bit and see if they hold up? Or or is that kind of the end result of some other approach that you bring to to research? I'm just curious how you wind up with these findings. I, I don't know if I'd describe myself as a, a devil's advocate. I'll take the, the friendly part that you mentioned. Uh, but uh, honestly, I, you know, I wish I could say that this was, you know, some attempt at uh, trying to, you know, test hypotheses. But really, a lot of my work and the the kind of trajectory that I got started on was from some of my early studies where really, you know, I, my advisor wasn't a mentoring researcher. Uh, I didn't really interact with mentoring researchers, you know, oddly enough, until I met, you know, Tim Cavell at a conference towards the end of my PhD. But I, I really got involved as a methodologist to evaluate a mentoring program that had already existed. And that evaluation, which I'll talk about in a little bit, probably, I I felt like I got really duped, you know, coming in to the evaluation with what we expected and what we thought we knew and, you know, only to find out that what we thought really wasn't. And I think that 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 kind of set my trajectory to really start questioning, like, what what are what am I doing with this program? What are we doing, you know, in this this field and how do we think it works? The basic idea for those that aren't familiar is that first evaluation. This was a school-based, a school community university partnership with a program that was, you know, had wide acclaim at the university. Like it was on the provost webpage and the school district had it on their, you know, webpage as the premier community uh, help for their schools that they're getting and so on. Uh, A lot of qualitative kind of acceptability data that mentors love the program, the kids love the program, the teachers love the program, the administration love the program. They finally said, well, we got to if we want to keep you know, getting support for this from the university and from the community, we've got to have a randomized evaluation. And that's kind of where I came in. And it's also my background's in school psychology. So I was interested in the school component and they were I- implementing motivational interviewing and the, some of their training that they had. But after you know, evaluating that program, we found that the program actually wasn't, wasn't working well. Uh, in fact, like probably the you know, the best case scenario is that it wasn't working and worst case scenario is that it was actually disrupting some of the kids' grades and uh, functioning in school. And after that experience, it kind of made me sit back and think like, well, what, you know, how would we answer some of these questions or how would we approach this research from a way that we could test some of these assumptions that we've had about how and why mentoring works, especially in school-based programs, which I think are, are quite different than what we'd expect from like a traditional community-based program. Well, thank you, Sam. And and I think you mentioned a key word there, which is assumptions. And in my work with programs for two decades plus now, I find a lot of programs that have uh, just kind of assumed that what they're doing with kids is going to result in the outcomes uh, that they're they're shooting for. I call it the the hope and pray theory of change, where 
you know, we're providing a good mentoring relationship. They're getting along. They're, there's, you know, mutuality and they, they do the activities of the program. And surely that will result in, in what we think it will, right? And, you know, a lot of times you do an evaluation, like you mentioned, and, and it turns out that it's not um, for a variety of reasons. And I, I think the whole field is starting to get a little uh, smarter about, you know, really testing on those assumptions and, and not just kind of rushing to, you know, this kind of safe place where it's like, oh, if you just have the matches, you're doing what you need to be to be doing. So let's talk a little bit about the program you just mentioned. And I think it's the one that you're probably most well known for in the, the field at this point. Um, that's the AMPT program. Uh, this is a program that works with middle school youth to improve their academic performance, uh, their engagement in school, but it's doing it using a shorter-term mentoring relationship. And this program is infused with a number of kind of theoretically-based practices. Uh, you mentioned the motivational interviewing component of it. Talk a little bit about the development of this program and and, you know, you mentioned how you got involved doing the evaluation, but I'm just curious as to kind of how did they come about this stew of different things that mentors are doing with kids in this program? So some of my other research that I've done has been focused on motivational interviewing. You might say motivational interviewing proper with, you know, trained psychologists or counselors providing motivational interviewing in uh, school systems. Uh, and it's a you know it's an intriguing approach to helping in part because of the remarkable evidence base for it, and uh, I think theoretically it's interesting because the approach to studying motivational interviewing has been very objective and behavioral, uh, where a lot of the research here actually blends into psycholinguistics in addition to kind of the counseling literature, where they're really looking at like what is the verbal behavior of these helpers and how does it influence the likelihood that the person that they're trying to help will change. So that intrigued me. Part of our program of study and there's some lines of research going on with that and it ended up bleeding into this mentoring program. Really what, you know, got me interested in studying this, you know, AMPT, now named AMPT, uh, but, you know, before it was kind of this you know, Frankenstein-like program that they were implementing prior to the first evaluation uh, was that they had this really kind of, like you described, this kitchen sink almost approach to helping that had a little bit of motivational interviewing. At the time, it had some like growth mindset type stuff and some future selves type things and uh, a bunch of, you know, of the buzzwords that you see from education and counseling and psychotherapy. I was particularly interested in the motivational interviewing component, but one of the things that we learned from that first evaluation and even into the, the second evaluation that I think was uh, published later in 2013 or 2015 was that, you know, the, the mentors were not doing the things that we asked them to do or encouraged them to do, like using motivational interviewing, consistent verbal behaviors. And then they were doing the things that we asked them not to do or to try and stay away from. And it's kind of an eye-opening experience, you know, evaluating the program to see that our expectations or assumptions for even, you know, what what we'd like the range of things that mentors are doing with the young people to do were just inconsistent with what was actually happening. So I think a, one of the movements that happened to kind of amped as it is today is that we got really structured on kind of what are the expectations of the program. 
so not necessarily structured in terms of a prescriptive, you know, this is what you have to do every single day, but more of a process. Like this is the approach that we want you to take when you're working with your young person. And from that, you know, we started this sequence of evaluations uh, where the randomized evaluations are kind of the bread in this sandwich of, you know, quality improvement efforts where really after each evaluation, we'd sit down, you know, for a year or even two uh, sequences, two and a half years of really just taking a look at the program and identifying, you know, what are the key pain points for mentors or for mentees? And what are some of the, you know, things that we think are happening that might not be happening? Or what are some of the, you know, things that we think aren't happening or we don't want to happen, but that actually are happening? And really, you know, the AMP as it is today, emerged from that process of kind of quality improvement efforts around really looking at the nitty gritty details. You know, example that I give just this past year, we had students looking at how we greet, you know, men- mentees during their first session. You know, what is that, what does an ideal greeting look like and how do we structure our training and support so that, you know, mentors can easily remember and uh, find useful uh, the training they get for that first meeting. But really that's kind of where the AMP is today is that it's a, it's a product of that development sequence. Yeah, and I I really love the fact that over time you've, you know, for each iteration of this, you really take a deep dive under the hood and and really look at at every aspect of the the program to say what can we what can we improve, what can we tweak. I remember uh, you talking at a summer institute here in Portland a few years ago about how you even changed simple things like the logo and kind of the the quality of the handouts and visual materials of the program that that seemed to have an influence on uh, mentors' perceptions of the program. I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about some of the other things that you've tweaked over the years, because really this program, we reviewed it for our crime solutions reviews when the NMRC first started and it got kind of a, a no effects rating, but the latest iteration got a promising rating, meaning that you were achieving most of the outcomes that you had set for young people in the program. And so it was really amazing to see over time, if you keep tweaking the program, you eventually wind up getting the results you want. And I was hoping you could maybe talk just a little bit about, you know, some of the other pieces that you tweaked and and what other programs can learn from that kind of continuous tinkering with their their model. A big thing for us is how this program was structured. And really, we started with you know, the context and structure of the program, uh, like where it's a school-based program, it had a pretty long history, you know, some in- infrastructure surrounding it. So we kind of put those as our limits, like we're, we're not going to change the program into, a, you know, a long-term community-based uh, program. So we, you know, realized the context and the structure that we had the program in. And that's really where we started is, you know, how could we you know, support mentors who are, you know, regularly meeting with these young people over the course of a school year or even a school semester to help uh, these young people out. And a a big part of the program, like most, I hope most mentoring programs is that it's, you know, it's voluntary for kids. Uh, And we really take that seriously is that this is, you know, the kids are spending their time, you know, at school, which is precious time. Uh, to meet with a, a mentor, uh, we wanted to make sure that was a, a valuable part of their their week uh, when they are meeting them. And I always, part of the training that we go through with mentors is, you know, in many ways, uh, even in like a brief school-based mentoring program, we're interfering with these young people's lives. Like we need to be careful 
and you know think about where our blind spots or errors or the disruption that we could cause you know in their life at school or home or otherwise so a lot of our quality improvement efforts were actually focused on kind of getting a sense from the young people like what do they think about the program uh like you talked about our logo as we originally had this logo it's a school-based program and we put it all over our manuals and stuff like that at one point we had shirts that mentors would wear but uh, the original logo was two book bags and one was bigger than the other. And this was something that I probably came up with. You're thinking that it was a great idea. And, it, you know, the big book bag is for the mentor. Little book bag was for the the little kind of like the big brothers, big sisters type idea. But we did some focus groups with kids and asked them about you know different things on the program. And over and over again, like independent of each other, students, so they really didn't like that, that one of the book bags was bigger <laughs> Than the other one, which is, I would have never thought of that, you know, and it, it, then you think about it and you're like, yeah, it kind of does have some weird connotation. Like, you know, my bag is, you know, bigger and, you know, and all this, but that was something they told us. So we ended up changing the logo. Now the book bags are the same size, <laughs> but a lot of stuff is like that. Like, you know, well, a, a, you know, the best, I think the best indicator of programs that really reiterate this voluntary aspect of it is that kids will talk with their feet. And especially if you don't have any type of if you protect that kid from any type of coercion to participate in the program or any type of, you know, uh, incentive that might sway them to suffer through a program they don't really enjoy, you know, kids will, kids will come to a program that they enjoy and they'll walk away from a program they don't. And then also getting the sense from our mentors, you know, most of the mentors are, they know the mentee that they're working with way better than the, than I do. Uh, and that the, even the supervisors uh, do and they can get a sense of like what's working well and what's not working well and you know what they need to to actually help the young person they're working with or what they need to actually you know engage or learn more about the young person or relate to the young person they're working with so i think a lot of that is really starting at the bottom for this type of quality improvement stuff is saying you know this is generally what we're looking for but how's this work and how does this look to our mentees and mentors Good advice. Always, always start with your own uh, constituents because they will often have things to say and, and insights that, you know, it's like editing a, a paper you've written, right? You're too close to it. You can't, can't see it. Uh, you need a, an outside perspective sometimes. circle back, uh, Sam, and ask about one last thing about kind of the AMPT program and the approach they take to get these middle schoolers kind of re-engaged with school and, and motivated. And that is the motivational interviewing aspect of it. You'd mentioned earlier that there's a, a big linguistic component to it, that it's very much about what you are saying to the young person with a lot of specificity. And so I just wanted to get a sense from you you know, what is it about motivational interviewing that you think is a good fit for getting young people kind of back on track with their attitudes about school and, and kind of their level of engagement with school? And and how good of a fit is that for, for mentoring, which I think we often think of mentoring as being kind of free form and you just got to be yourself and go with the flow naturally in, in what you're doing. But MI is pretty prescriptive. And I just was curious to hear how well you think it fits with mentoring and, and kind of what you've had to do to make it work in, in the AMPT program. Right. 
No, I think, well, I don't know if I'd describe motivational interviewing as prescriptive. So that it, I'll talk a little bit about that. But first, to answer your question of like, what are what is actually happening in this? The main reason that we found some merit in motivational interviewing in mentoring is that oftentimes, not always, but many times mentors talk with their mentees about behavior change. This could be, you know, changing their schoolwork behavior or risky behavior or you know, aggressive behavior at school and so on. Uh, and there's, there's some growing and really, in my opinion, really strong relative uh, to other findings in counseling evidence that there are some things that are really helpful for promoting behavior change and then other things that are less helpful. So from the, the motivational interviewing lens, a lot of the approach is grounded in this idea of trying to reduce uh, something we call the writing reflex. And the, the writing reflex is something that I think, you know, probably helpers like mentors or teachers or psychologists, we probably, you know, just from instinct are more prone to this type of thing than others. Uh, but the writing reflex is an attempt to correct a problem for someone else. And you're probably, you know, we know it when we see it, uh, but it's, it might be hard to kind of think about how you use these in conversations. Some examples of these, though, are like giving people advice or warning them away from doing something, you know, having some promised threat that might happen to them if they keep doing something, assuming like the role of an expert or trying to appeal to old war stories from your childhood uh, to persuade them to stop doing. There's a bunch of these examples of writing reflexes, which are, you, know, you can think of like making suggestions or moralizing. So moralizing this idea of like, you should, you really shouldn't be doing that. We always tell our mentors, don't should on your mentee, you know, don't, don't tell them what they should or shouldn't be doing shaming or ridiculing or like you know sometimes when conversations about behavior change come up it, it can some mentors will just avoid those conversations like they'll distract you know from the conversation or make a joke or humorize to you know get away from uh, conversations about behavior change which can often be difficult uh, so really, that's the that's kind of the the basic idea is that we're you know trying to avoid the writing reflex. And some might ask, you know, why do you want to avoid the writing reflex if these kids are doing stuff that's wrong? Well, there's decades of uh, research in cognitive dissonance and social psychology that support this idea that people will resist persuasion when they're not sure if they want to change. Uh, so the you know fields of marketing and uh, other behavioral sciences have figured this out uh, long before, and it seems to be uh, pretty consistent a across uh, domains of behavior change. So the basic idea of motivational interviewing is that we want to reduce the likelihood that we engage in helping that's actually harmful. Uh, we use a term often called harmful helping, which is you know, well-intended approaches to having conversation that actually make people less likely to change. And then the other part of that is, you know, finding out reasons that, you know, the young person you're working with might want to change. So you use other strategies to, you know, asking open-ended questions and making reflections that really emphasize and evoke a young person's own values, uh, their own thoughts on kind of why they're ambivalent about changing or not, and then how they might want to make some changes uh, with their behavior. So it's really a strategy for getting the young person to reflect on their own self. Is that a fair way of putting it? Getting them to think about what's important to them, why they may be, you know, kind of disengaged from school and and coming up with reasons that are internal to them, not as you said, from an external source telling them they should be interested in school. But it, it's a way of unpacking 
why they want to be engaged in school. Is that a, a fair way of putting it? Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a great way to put it. You know, people are happier and they're more likely to commit to change efforts if the those efforts are consistent with their own values. And that's a big part of this is, you know, in a lot of the motivational interviewing interventions and in our mentoring program, you know, the first session, we want to know, like, what's this kid about? Like, what are their values? What are the things that are really important to them? You know, what do they live for? What's their code of ethic? And, you know, how do they get around? And I think, you know, one of the surprising things that I always am surprised by is that, that perhaps we overlook a lot is that kids have these things. Kids have codes of ethics and they have really strong values and, you know, things that they're they're living for. And, you know, finding out how those values and vision for their life connects with, you know, what they're doing in school or, you know, in their peer relationships or after school, I think is uh, often really enlightening. That's great. And it seems to, to almost be, well, one, I mean, what you just described is a very youth-centric approach to mentoring, right? Finding out who you are and what your values are and then building from there. And I, boy, I'll tell you, when you mentioned the writing reflexes, I, I thought, you know, that's a lot of the mentoring field is that giving advice, telling war stories, doing the should thing, that's a lot of what we ask mentors to kind of bring to the relationship at some level. And I think it's interesting that philosophically, this program is kind of really de-emphasizing that you've also shaken me as a parent here because I realize that every <laughs> single thing I do with my own children is a writing reflex. So That's I, why we call it a reflex, though. So, yeah. you know, I, always, I always joke that like, you know, like I have a graduate student that learn motivational interviewing very rapidly, surprisingly so. And I always joke with her that like, it took me years to get, even like when I'm under intense performance pressure and people recording me in role plays and stuff to get decent at it. And she just picked it up like it was, you know, no big deal. So it's hard. <laughs> it is, we call it a reflex for a reason. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but one of the things you do for mentors in your program is a lot of just in time training because it's hard. You do a lot of kind of reemphasizing of like, here's what you're going to talk about this session. And, and here are things that you might want to emphasize and, you know, what to say, what to build on the last session and, and that kind of thing. Right. No. And I think that, you know, the other thing that you'd mentioned is the idea of the reason I, reacted to the idea of motivational being prescriptive is I think your term that it's youth centered that, it, you know, these kids are voluntarily setting their own goals or identifying things that they'd like to work on, but it's guided in a way by the mentor, you know, through a person centered approach to having a conversation. So there are some things, do's and don'ts, but they're very centered on kind of what does this young person want to talk about? I want to move on a little bit from the AMPT work uh, and talk about some of the other papers that you've put out uh, over the last year or two. One of them you did with uh, Mike Lyons, who I believe is at the University of Virginia, and you did an interesting paper where you'd reanalyzed some of the data from the student mentoring program, which was a Department of Ed funded uh, mentoring effort in the, the early 2000s, um, I believe, wound up, uh, it operated for, I think, about five or six years before um, it was cut early in the Obama administration. And, you know, that program got evaluated. It did not have a great um, evaluation in terms of the results, 
But I know other folks have gone back to that data set and, and mined it and, you know, found perhaps some more good news in that data uh, than we thought there was. But you and Mike looked at something around relationship closeness. And you'd mentioned earlier that school-based mentoring programs often are not equipping mentors with a lot of strategies such as, say, motivational interviewing uh, to do the work. They're just putting a lot of their eggs in this, well, we're going to get them together and the relationship will be close and, and fun and mutual and all their eggs are in that relationship basket, so to speak. But you found that there were some interesting things around closeness of relationship in there, specifically that uh, there was like a limit on closeness, right? After a certain point, it didn't matter how close you were. It really didn't impact uh, what you were getting out of the program. So you just talk a little bit about what you Mike, did in that paper and, and what you found. Yeah, so I think he did a good job describing the the basic pitch of the paper is the idea of the paper is, you know, I wonder how much this program benefited kids uh, who felt differently about their relationship with their mentor in terms of how their, you know, the closeness of their relationship. And the statistical approach that we use allows us to uh, estimate the treatment effect at different levels of that relationship closeness. So you can kind of get a, an idea of what the expected effect of the intervention would be on average for kids that have, you know, whatever level of relationship uh, closeness. And the basic finding was that it supports, you know, decades and decades of research and counseling, psychotherapy, you know, industrial organizational psychology and mentoring is that the relationship definitely matters. In particular, a negative relationship is a significant threat uh, to the well-being of the child. And that was the primary finding, I think. The headline of that paper is that there's some risk involved in mentoring, uh, is that if you have a, you know, a mentor that, or a match that has a really disrupted relationship, you, know, you could be harming the kids. The other kind of you know, less headline-y uh, finding was that you know, there's a linear what we call a deaccelerating linear relationship, uh, where as relationship quality improves from this, you know, you know, harmful relationship that's very negative, we see the effects of the program improve, but that improvement deaccelerates. Uh, so, you know, this is similar to some findings in parenting research that, you know, the return on your investment, at least for how we measured, you know, relationship closeness. Uh, deaccelerate so that really it looks like for kind of, you know, the, for this study that we did, we did a follow-up study after this that found some other interesting things with this data set. But for this study that, you know, the relationship just needs to be good enough. It doesn't have to be, you know, extremely good, or there doesn't seem to be a lot of return for having an extremely close relationship versus a decent or a good relationship. And this is, you know, consistent with some of the research in psychotherapy that, you know, they've even gotten away from describing it as, you know, relationship of more of like a working alliance or an amicable, uh, friendly, uh, you know, alliance that they have. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I, I, I like that phrase, working alliance. Um, I mean, you hear that a lot around um, the relationship between, say, a therapist and a, a patient. But it's an interesting notion in the world of mentoring where we have this mantra of like, you know, closer is better and you should be as much like a, 
family member to the kid as you can be, right? And and I think for a school-based context in particular, I think it's interesting to note that uh, you can often get the same type of results by just having a good working relationship, right? It doesn't, we're only going to be together for a school year, most likely, and and there's a lot of breaks in the school year. So there's probably some limits to how uh, deep of a bond we're going to be able to form as a mentor and mentee. Uh, so let's focus on just having a good working relationship. And if you think about it, that makes sense. I want to ask a quick follow-up around that finding you mentioned around negative relationships. How prevalent were those? I mean, uh, obviously, you know, they were harmful to the young people that were experiencing them. But was that a fairly rare occurrence? Or did you perhaps find more of that than you thought you might in that data set? I would actually have to look back at uh, the prevalence. And I think that we have a table, uh, at least if not in this paper and the other paper. But my general recollection is that the poor relationships were the minority, but their their effect on you know the treatment estimate uh, was large enough to you know adjust the average effect of the program uh, to near zero. Whereas you know that positive relationship had a, a much smaller positive effect, but it seemed to be average out across outcomes in the program. So you know, any I always talk to my students about this. Anytime you see it as a zero effect size. You know, the logical interpretation of that is that, you know, half the kids got better and then half the kids got worse. And I think that part of what we did in that study was trying to identify, you know, what made some of these kids get worse. And it looked like it was a relatively small number of them, but still practically meaningful. Yeah, well, and, you know, we can make the argument if the goal is to do no harm, then, you know, one is is too many um, but it's important. I'm glad you're calling out the fact that, you know, even in these kind of fairly benign school-based programs where we're, you know, not talking about major life struggles, we're just trying to get you to focus on school a little bit more. There is still the potential there for that to be a harmful interaction and a, a really negative experience. I think we forget that sometimes. I want to ask about another paper that you wrote this past year or two that, uh, talked about something that we've kind of hinted at throughout this conversation, which is that uh, a lot of mentoring programs, particularly school-based ones, don't really give mentors a, a clear set of actions and activities to do, right? They're kind of just letting them, uh, you know, do whatever it seems like the kid they're working with needs. So you have some mentors that are spending a lot of time teaching homework uh, skills. Others are helping with test prep and doing tutoring type things. Others are talking about bullying at school, whatever it may be. But what you wind up with is a program in which every match is kind of doing something different and it's not very prescribed. And, and you've noted that as an evaluator, that makes it really uh, fairly impossible to evaluate and research what's happening in that program because everyone's doing something kind of different. Um, but you've also noted, on the other hand, that when we make programs tighter and more prescriptive and and more controlled, that you may wind up with findings that are easier to understand, but they're not generalizable to the work of other programs in the field. You're basically studying unicorns at that point. And, and you know, you may find out how one program works, but you're not producing generalizable knowledge uh, that could be used by others. So I guess a question for you is, 
you know, how do we equip mentors with more skills, with more kind of prescribed things that they should be doing that we know work without turning mentoring into a cookie cutter operation? Um, how do we balance that that problem? Right. Yeah, I, I think I love what you said of how do we have useful studies that don't then turn mentoring into a cookie cutter. And I think that was the real purpose of that paper is to find some balance between this idea that uh, programs should be very prescriptive to reach the outcomes that they're intending to versus this idea that, you know, if you do that, is it really mentoring or is it something else? And I think there's the purpose of the paper was really to uh, provide some suggestions for researchers on how we could study this, you know, without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, the first part of the paper on prescription and, you know, we don't really know what's happening or what mentors are doing with mentees uh, is that it's a methodological problem. So it's not necessarily a problem with, you know, the mentoring field, uh, but it's really a problem with how mentoring has been researched in the past. And the problem with that is if we, if we don't know what mentors are doing with the young people they're working with, Regardless of if we find effects, we the the inferences come from some unknown source. So it's hard to make sense practically or scientifically of that type of research. And especially given the consideration that you mentioned that mentors do all kinds of stuff with young people, uh, especially in most programs. Um, I'm always surprised, even in my program, which I think uh, many would argue is uh, on the, the more prescriptive end of the spectrum, there's a ton of variability in what these mentors are doing with the young people they're working with uh, in terms of the goals they set, the activities that they're doing together, you know, the modules that they select to work with on, you know, with each other. Uh, so that's, we have a long kind of, you know, discussion of why that's problematic uh, in the experiment, but you know, the kind of initial reaction, I think to that for me, and I think for other researchers in the field was then, well, if that's a big problem, then we need to, we need to prescribe the activities so that we know what they're doing and we can make valid in inferences and we can improve the science of the field and so on. The basic idea of this comes from, you know, methods work. You often hear people say, you know, max, min, con, which is the approach to conducting experiments, which is the idea of, you know, you maximize the difference between groups, what they call the experimental variance. You try and make the groups as different from each other as you can, a, a nice contrast between those that get mentoring and those that don't, then you try and minimize uh, the error variance. And a big source of error variance in experiments is, you know, difference in the treatment construct, which in mentoring, you know, this for conducting experiments, like a randomized evaluation, this is a big problem because there's a lot of differences in what people are working on, the type of goals that they're setting, the activities they do, or, uh, you know, how they're approaching their relationship. And then the other idea is, you know, control, for potential confounding variables that might influence the de dependent variable. And all these things, you know, a lot of the suggestions around what I think a lot of people would call the prevention science approach or, you know, the uh, more prescriptive approach are really suggestions to improve the usefulness of experiments more so than suggestions to improve the effects of mentoring at large. And I think that's that dynamic that we really tried to balance in that paper is that it doesn't have to be either or. And I think a lot of this is because mentoring as a field has inherited a lot of the design characteristics 
uh, for the experiments from intervention services and so on that are, you know, by definition prescriptive, which are things like education and psychotherapy for specific mental disorders and so on. Well, thank you. I, I'm glad that folks like you are thinking deeply about um, how to study mentoring more effectively, right? And if, you know, my 20 years in this field has taught me anything, it's that this is a very hard type of support to to measure both in its delivery and in what young people are getting out of it. And, you know, I'm still convinced that you don't see the, the long-term impact of having had a mentor um, even a, a brief one in a you know, working alliance type relationship, I think that there are probably sleeper outcomes from that that don't hit until you're in your 30s or 40s. I'm, you know, I'm constantly reflecting back on on adults that I had in my life, and if you'd asked me at the time, you know, how did that adult help you, and and what did it result in, I I couldn't have told you, right? So. Um, so I, I'm glad that, you know, you're thinking about, you know, how can we study these programs more effectively to, to you know, take into account, you know, that variability and, and, you know, not squash it, but actually kind of honor it in the way we're looking at how programs achieve their outcomes. No, and I think, you know, to your point, the other thing is that the designs as they currently are could be underestimating you know, local effects on kids' lives, even in the immediate evaluation. So Mike Lyons and I right now are, are writing a paper where we actually simulate data to show that even if we have relatively, you know, moderate effects, you know, on a, a bunch of kids for specific outcomes, the, you know, the intent to treat effect, the average, you know, effect on outcomes across the study will still be very small in part because, you know, the work that those you know, hypothetical mentors are doing with their mentee gets washed out because other mentors are focusing on other things. So even if you have a you know bunch of mentors doing really helpful things, but those helpful things are uh, helping different outcomes across an, an experimental study, those effects will get washed out. Which is often why I think you know people are surprised. You know, when they see the effects of mentoring, especially in meta analyses, they're like, how could they? You know, they should be larger. Uh, and I think part of that is because of how we've conducted our experiments. circle back and mention and talk about one last thing that uh, I know you do in the AMPT program uh, and that you have also written a paper about uh, recently. And that's the ideas of, of both just-in-time training, but also task shifting. Task shifting meaning that uh, instead of having, in some cases, highly trained professionals uh, delivering something to young people that we can get other people in those kids' lives to deliver whatever the intervention or service might be. And I believe you did a study around counseling and academic support tasks in which you kind of had a bunch of college students do something that would usually be done by, you know, mental health professionals or, or trained therapists and really showed that you can you can kind of task shift and, and have lay people in some instances achieve very similar results. Um, and there's all kinds of good reasons for doing that. You can take things to scale, you can do them more cheaply, but I'm hoping you can just describe that study a little bit and what you found and 
And really, my question is, are we better off task shifting and having lay people such as mentors, volunteers, for example, doing some of these things? Or should we instead be fighting for more funding to hire professionals, right? Is task shifting just a way of of shifting the the burden of something onto people that, that may not be ready for it? I'd just be curious your thoughts around that. Right. No, I think you hit on a, a number of good points. So that, you know, the impetus for task shifting, you know, first, I should say, like as a policy level, a lot of this came from like HIV uh, prevention and treatment is that, especially for kids that have, you know, prodromal mental health symptoms or, you know, preclinical or subclinical, whatever you want to call them, that they're, they're suffering uh, but they, they're not going to get a diagnosis for a mental disorder and so on. Now, this is a, a really grossly underserved uh, population. Now, without even stopping there, I mean, the population of people with diagnosable mental illnesses uh, for young people, you know, these people are not getting the services that they need. And there's, there's pretty good evidence. Like if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics for uh, job growth and mental health professions and the projected rates of the burden of mental illness in young people, uh, market forces or insurance policy will not solve that problem unless you have a, a really Pollyannic picture of what the future will look like. It's just not going to happen. So that and part of it, this is a very similar kind of reaction uh, to in some of the developing countries that people had with you know HIV. We will never have enough physicians uh, to help these people. Uh, and that demand drove a lot of interest in this idea of task shifting. The World Health Organization has been very active in proliferating ideas and uh, looking at how this task shifting might work. So my response to your first question is, should we you know, rather be advocating and you know, lobbying to get more mental health professionals? I think it's both and. I think that in conjunction with really serious advocacy for the country to realize the really serious, you know, suffering that kids are going through uh, because of untreated or mistreated mental and behavioral health problems. We also need to be thinking about how we can expand access to services, even if they aren't from uh, professionals. But the demand argument, I don't think, is the only argument for this. There's a lot of evidence that uh, lay providers or people that are closer to the communities that uh, we're trying to serve, especially, uh, you know, under-resourced communities that lay providers who perhaps can relate better to have a similar lived experience and have some, you know, community knowledge about, you know, help that's accessible and how to, how to access it might be uh, better equipped in many circumstances than perhaps a more highly skilled or highly trained professional that maybe lacks that kind of connection. And there's some really great experiments that we mentioned in that paper that have been conducted in Brazil and other countries where lay providers provide uh, equivalent or better services than trained psychologists or through professional mental health clinics. So I think that there's there's two arguments for it. One is the demand and the other is that we could perhaps, you know, strengthen services by, you know, equipping these lay providers. But with all that said, you know, I think a third of that paper are pretty significant ethical considerations. So there's some really memorable, bad examples of when task shifting was very disruptive to systems and that provided care that was inferior to the care that people would have received if it was professionally delivered. And right now, especially in mentoring, 
there's some really basic research that needs to be done. Like, can mentors actually do the stuff that we'd be asking them to do? And if they do it, is it safe and effective? So I think from a researcher standpoint, this stuff is really intriguing and exciting. But I think from a practice standpoint, uh, I would be very hesitant to you know, advocate on behalf of major task shifting or systemic structured efforts to shift tasks from mental health providers to mentors. Thanks, Sam. And I, I feel like that leads perfectly into to my last question for you. And, you know, I feel like a lot of what mentoring has undergone in the last 15 years or so, maybe the last decade, I don't know if I'd call it task shifting, but I feel like what the average volunteer mentor in the average program is asked to take on these days is radically different than what it was uh, 15, 20 years ago, right? I'm seeing mentoring applied to youth, as you noted, with you know serious mental health challenges. I'm seeing mentoring discussed as a school reform uh, vehicle so that we can kind of revitalize America's schools through relationships, workforce development, uh, even things like uh, socioeconomic, um, you know, uh, equality and equity, right? So um, using mentoring as kind of this transformative strategy for society. And, and, you know, that's a lot different than just would you be kind of a big brother like figure to this kid and go to some ball games and have some fun and, you know, they'll, they'll be happier and feel better about themselves. Like those are really, that's the shift that we've undergone in, in 20 years for a lot of reasons. But I think about a lot of your work and I've heard you talk about you know, the value of small wins and using mentoring in kind of these targeted ways to help a young person at a particular point in time overcome a particular hurdle that's right there in front of them. And and so I guess my last question to you is, do you think mentoring relationships can be transformative in that way that we often think of them as in literally changing the trajectory of lives or it seems like a lot of your work is around hitting singles instead of hitting home runs. And I'm just curious to see if you think we should focus on kind of those smaller wins and smaller hurdles, or should we be doing programming that is is trying to hit that home run? I'd just be curious your thoughts around that. You know, I think, again, it's like a both and type of thing. I don't think that by focusing on you know, base hits, as you'd say, I don't think that in mentoring that necessarily translates to giving up the home run. And I think part of that is because, you know, mentoring programs and mentors are perhaps more limited than we think in terms of what these home run type experiences are. It's actually Bill Miller, the one of the developers of motivational interviewing and other work that he's done, he has this concept that he calls quantum change, which I think is very similar to your idea of a home run. Uh, it's this idea of like, you know, epiphanies or insights that we get that transform our lives uh, or, you know, experiences that we have, whether it's a mentoring experience or something else. And there's good evidence that these things are actually not that uncommon, uh, that transformative change actually happens. Uh, and it happens at a, a rate that is, you know, most people will know uh, a handful of people in their immediate circle that have had some type of quantum change in an area in their life. Uh, the difficult part of that is that those changes are often hard to engineer. We often want to, you know, we have that writing reflex that <laughs> we want people to have quantum change. Um, but I think a lot of that depends on, you know, the the person that is being helped and, you know, their, you know, values and what they want to do with their life and so on. 
to your other question, like with, you know, mentoring scope spreading, which I think there pro- that's, there's probably a lot of truth to that, that especially from like philanthropic interest that the scope of mentoring has expanded pretty dramatically. I think we found that in that survey that we did together uh, that, you know, it used to be that everyone's top goal was that we had a close relationship. And that was like, I think fourth or fifth or something now. But the bottom line is, is that I bet if you'd go back 20, 30 years, regardless of kind of what, you know, how the surveys were structured and so on, most of these mentors are working with kids that have these really significant problems, whether it's problems related to socioeconomic mobility or discrimination or mental health issues or conduct problems. I think uh, it would be naive to think that those problems just started. <laughs> I think the field has started to recognize that this is something that if we are going to interfere with these kids' lives and implant this relationship with an adult helper, uh, we have to be ready to help these kids in some way. One of the things I did a talk not too long ago, we had had a discussion around this, that task shifting is already happening. Like mentors are already trying to help their young people. Like you talk to mentors all the time, especially if you go to these adolescent programs where mentees are cutting or engaging in pretty serious self-harm or risky behavior. And it's, you know, in many ways it's like, okay, you know, are we supposed to turn a blind eye to that? Or would it be better to equip the mentor to, you know, reach out and engage with mental health professionals or others? So I think there's some of that new philanthropic interest in promoting outcomes through mentoring that might be a little bit different than how it was. But I think also there's this reality that mentors have been dealing with this stuff for decades. And I think the field is interested in figuring out how we can help mentors successfully engage the young people they're working with in the things that they're struggling with. Well, thank you, Sam. I I really appreciate your perspective on that. And I want to end with... One final question, the bonus question, which is something I'm doing with every guest this season on the podcast. And the bonus question is this. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the mentoring field, the mentoring movement as a whole, what would it be? Good question. Um, you know, honestly, I would, I would answer that question. I think mentoring right now is a very exciting field to be in for me. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm, uh, not just among researchers, but also programs. And I think a lot of that is because of the infrastructure that we have, the research infrastructure with researchers who are working closely together, trying to solve these you know, complicated problems. We have you know, programs with long histories that are you know, scaled, where they're you know, serving a lot of people and have access to research evidence. They can change their program. And I, if I could wave a magic wand, one thing that I would maybe not change, uh, but I would wish that we'd have some stability in the infrastructure that we have right now. I think progress in these areas is uh, probably slower than all of us would like. Uh, but I think that the field right now is answering really interesting questions in the research and they're doing really important work in practice. And I'd like to see uh, that infrastructure uh, nurture uh, quality improvements across the field in the, the future by making sure that we retain those infrastructures and keep the resources that we have right now or expand those resources in the future. Well, as somebody who works at a very much infrastructure organization and mentoring and on a project that is providing free training and technical assistance to programs nationwide, I wholeheartedly agree with your plea for more uh, stability in our infrastructure. And uh, to any funders listening out there, 
help provide that stability, please. Thank you. <laughs> so I appreciate the plug. Um, well, thank you, Sam. I, I really appreciate the conversation today. I encourage folks to to find your work. We'll provide some links when we put this podcast up on the website so that people can maybe find some of these papers or at least the abstracts for them uh, and, and learn a little bit more about your work. Um, just really appreciate your perspective and and the way you approach youth mentoring. And I feel like uh, the future of research in this field is in good hands with scholars like you uh, kind of leading the way. So thank you everyone for listening. And I hope uh, you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, just remember that we've got several more episodes of Reflections on Research to uh, go through this this season. Uh, so look for more of those throughout the tail end of 2019 on the NMRC website and SoundCloud and iTunes. And one last plug, if you're a mentoring program that was intrigued by anything we talked about here today or got a spark of some idea that, you know, I'd like to improve some aspect of my mentoring program, please sign up for that free training and technical assistance that I mentioned through the NMRC. If you go to nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org, there's a big red Get Technical Assistance button right at the top of the page. Just click that, fill out the request form, and we'll pair you up with one of our expert technical assistance providers from around the country. Uh, we've got deep expertise on just about anything you could want to uh, improve about your program, and it's all free to you. So I really encourage folks to take advantage of that opportunity to improve the quality of what you offer young people. So on behalf of OJJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, thanks again for joining us. And remember, the research may seem like it's definitive at times, but I really think we determine what's true and real in this field through good conversations about research like this. So thank you, Sam, for your time, and we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research.